0: When did the narcotics bug hit? When did you
1: decide, I like working dope? Probably the real kicker was, um, and I won't go into any names um, or too much detail, but there was um, a couple ladies that worked in one of the courts that I frequented, and they were really nice. They were clerks and stuff, and, and they were related. And one day I was there, I had a case, and I was waiting for the proceedings to begin. And the one lady got a phone call from one of her children, said, couldn't wake up the other child. So they asked me if I could give her a ride. And I said, well, to home, she didn't have a car. I said, well, certainly as long as the judge lets, you know, says it's okay. So I when to see the judge, he said, yeah. So we get in the car and I, I'm not thinking anything. The, this child was 15 or 16, I guess. And on the way up, this uh, clerk asked me, well, is there any type of drug that could cause this? Of course I had to say, yeah. Well, I think my, my child's using drugs. So I called for an ambulance to meet us there. And it was, and then we went code three, license and siren, and we got there, and the ambulance crew was standing on the porch and, with very somber looks on her face. Make a long story short, um, I took her home to find her daughter dead from a drug overdose. Welcome to Game of Crimes.
0: You know, it is it is amazing, Steve, that I'm sitting up straight for this podcast because it we you know we said we were going to talk about it. We'll get into it in a minute about travel hell schedule, you know, and flights being canceled. But in the meantime, we are excited to be back. This is going to be episode 62 of the greatest podcast show on earth, Game of Crimes. I am Morgan Wright. I am your host, the host with the most hair, obviously literally here with my partner in crime. (laughs) Hey, it's Murph,
2: everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome back. Hey, guys, and I got to tell you, too, uh, just keep the reviews coming in. Uh, Steve and I will tell you, our episode with Natasha, is uh, the, the comments are just snowballing. They're starting to get more and more, and people are just I actually just got a a private message on Facebook Messenger yesterday from a guy who said, look, I'm a wildcat for life, but I was so embarrassed by my school for doing this. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, hey, that wasn't the goal. There's a lot – don't get us wrong. A lot of good people at Arizona um, University, just a couple people there decided to uh, be the moral police and uh, without knowing somebody's story and uh, ruin somebody's uh, potential. So shame on them. Not the university, but they are part of the university.
2: And and the person who was being the moral police, <laughs> look at how she did it. She did it on a swingers blog. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she did. Okay. Well, hey, if you
0: like those comments and you like us, just head on over to uh, Apple and Spotify now. Give us those five stars. It really helps out a lot. We don't normally – I don't normally read a lot of the comments on there because some people just – they don't listen to the whole thing. They don't understand our thing. And so they just leave some – yeah. they're not hurtful, you can't hurt our feelings, but it's just I just wish people would take the time to do more than just a reflexive comment hey look if you don't if you like us great and if you don't like us, that's great too, but give us a shot, you know, and then yeah. just give us a rating over there and that that's all we ask so also head on over to our website gameofcrimespodcast.com dot com for everything out there, our book list, our merch um our mailing list, all that good stuff. we don't spam you a lot we we, we don't put out a lot of emails, but when we do by God, it's important, and so you should pay attention. <laughs> That's right, what he said. That's right, damn it. Also, follow us on that thing uh, called the social media there on the interwebs, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But Steve, where you got to be, where you got to be? I'm going to ask you one more time, where do you got to be?
2: You got to get over on Patreon and check us out over there. We just did a thing this past weekend with our highest level Patreon subscribers where we did live Zoom meeting with them face-to-face, uh, Pick their brains. They came up with some great suggestions, especially one about Morgan interrupting everybody. We're gonna we're gonna follow through. I on do that not thing.
0: interrupt everybody. Just <laughs> let's see. There, there you go. I don't either. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it was just it was fantastic, and and the support that they showed us and the love was fantastic. I just loved it. So we're gonna continue doing that. But and that's just one of the many things we got on Patreon. There is so much content on there. I think we've got more there than we have on our regular shows here. So it's fantastic. Come and give us a shot.
0: Yeah, and look, we just got through. Uh, by the time this comes out, um, episode three of the Real DEA Narcos, talking about the Real DEA Narcos Cali Edition, Chris Feistel, Dave Mitchell. Um, I get to edit these things, and I'm telling you, this it just the it's amazing how much content these guys have. What's in their brains? The story, it's over there. And what Steve was talking about to our warden of the Thrum folks, the other thing they got too that's special is they got an idea of things we're working on, upcoming episodes, things that we won't disclose even on other levels of Patreon. So. It get They get exclusive access to some of the neat things that are coming out, so head on over there, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, or head on over to PayPal. Use our email, Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the cause. But guess what? As we do with anything, this is our standard disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the stories extremely seriously. But what, Steve?
2: But what? But what? But we never take ourselves seriously. This is, we want this to be fun. We bring some serious stories on here. And if you, you listen to Natasha's, now we did cut back on, the, on our attempts at comedy on that one because that was such a serious topic. But uh, And you, you know what? We're probably going to do some follow-up on Natasha's story just yes, because of are. the response we're getting. So, uh, But we're going to have some fun in the meantime. Well, if we're going to have fun, guess what time it is, Murph? It must be time for... <laughs> Small, Small Town, Town, Town please, please. Police Blotters. You are getting slower. That Florida sun is slowing there you must, down. There must be a slowdown connection here because I'm watching you as we're doing this. I, I, I don't understand why we're not connecting here. Well, we are. You're Probably just because slow. you're from Kansas. Yeah, yeah and you're from oh. Florida. Hey, oh, well, i got tell you real f- quick. Before yeah. you say that, you know, we got to speak at the uh, DEA Academy this week. And there was a couple of Kansas guys came in. So I had to be, there was a lot of troopers in there. <laughs> I thought I was going to get my ass whooped before I got out of there. You're going to get your ass whooped. <laughs> well, we will talk about that in a minute.
0: In the meanwhile, let's get back to our regularly scheduled small town police plotter. By the way, okay, Steve. Here we go. Here we go. Another Florida story. It is a Florida yeah. story. It is a fir- no. Actually, technically, it's a California story. It should be about Florida, um, <laughs> Steve. You know, we can get you can get DNA from all sorts DNA from all sorts of stuff, right? So, you know, they've 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 used it to solve a lot of crimes. You get DNA from sweat and just your finger mm-hmm. touching. It's called touch DNA hair. This one, Steve, first case of its kind in California.
2: Uh oh. Accused Uh-oh. burglar
0: doesn't flush toilet leaves DNA for police. Number two got him five to ten. So the (laughs) man accused of burglarizing a Southern (laughs) California home took a bathroom break and left DNA in the evidence, uh, evidence in the toilet that led to his his arrest. An investigator said the suspect did his business and didn't flush during the October break in of the city of Thousand Oaks, said Detective Detective Tim Loman of the Ventura County Sheriff's Office. Ventura Highway in the springtime, you know, great (laughs) old American song. Uh, they, they conducted DNA. It allowed. It matched another profile in the national database, and detectives tracked him down at his home in the nearby city of Ventura. He was arrested uh, on first-degree residential burglaries. Bail set at eighteen thousand dollars. Loman said it's the first time DNA burglary, uh, the first DNA burglary match case he knows of with fecal evidence collected from a toilet.
2: Wow! Talk about a shitty job. But you know, think about it. You're getting ready to commit a burglary and go in somebody's house. And you got the urge, don't you think you'd go to the bathroom before you go <laughs> and start committing your crime?
0: <laughs> Tell you what, believe it or not, actually, uh, actually, there are people when they commit certain types of crimes, could be like homicide, they get so overwhelmed, they actually have to evacuate their bowels, as the uh, saying goes. So believe it or not. Mm-mm-mm. Well, Steve, this one I believe may be from Bartlett, Tennessee. I couldn't track it down to be sure, but guess what, Steve? You ever what? ate, uh, remember as a kid, you know, eating certain cereals, like, uh, you know, even as an adult, like, you know, Um, Cheerios, tricks, you know, Lucky Charms, right? Frosted Flakes, yep. Frosted Flakes, right? Well, you would think Lucky Charms would be lucky. Apparently, it wasn't. Thief takes off with Lucky Charms cereal. A Bartlett woman in the 500 block of Deer Park reported that her box of Lucky Charms cereal was stolen, according to a police report. Apparently, it's not so lucky.
2: (laughs) I'm sorry the woman suffered a theft, but... (laughs) You called to report, somebody got your cereal?
0: Yeah. Well, hey, this is a follow-up to our small-town police blotter from last week. Remember, Steve, last week where we said uh, somebody was gone by and they reported the dog in the uh, cage. It turned out to be a stuffed dog? Yeah. Okay, we have a follow-up to that from the city of West St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh-oh. Missing bird. A caller reported June 30th that a bird had been stolen from an apartment in the 100 block of Haskell Street East. It was later determined that the bird had not been stolen. Steve, not at all, but was lying dead at the bottom of its cage. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I guess they don't change the papers there very often. <laughs> oh, man.
0: It reminds me of the dead parrot sketch with Monty Python. He's not dead. He's just pining for the fjords. He's deaf. <laughs> He's dead. He's for of life.
2: Anyway. Uh,
0: oh, Thus, into the reading for today. All right. So that is it for small-town police blotter. Thank God, right?
2: Yeah, I was just looking where Bartlett, Tennessee is. It's, it's a suburb of Memphis. That's Memphis, where I was born. People are smarter than that.
0: There are songs about almost every city out there. But, hey, anyway, let's talk about this one because this is another – well, I say friend of yours, but you, we've exhausted all of your real friends. This one we had to pay. <laughs> And the great thing about this episode is you get a twofer. You had me, we were going to talk, we're going to talk about General Manuel Noriega, but when Mm -hmm. you said, ask him about the Booby boys, I said, okay, I'm a guy, you got my attention.
2: (laughs) Nobody ever told us, and even Lenny didn't tell us how the guy got his nickname. But uh, this is uh, a good friend of mine. We worked together, not cases together, but we were signed in Miami during the same time period back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and everybody's heard of General Manuel Noriega, the dictator that took over Panama.
0: It stole uh, and stole George all... Young's
2: $65 million. Yep. And just, you know, was taking payoffs from everybody and their brother. If you wanted to offer him cash, he'd take it and you could get whatever you wanted. Well, Lenny was assigned with another DE agent, Steve Greeley. They were the two agents that were assigned to conduct the investigation and get it ready for prosecution against Manuel Noriega. And of course, we know... Uh, the U S went down there and snatched his happy little butt out and, and brought him back. Um, but so as I was talking to Lenny about prepping for this, I said, uh, I said, man, this is a great case. Everybody's going to love it hearing the real story, Lenny. And he's like, oh, I got to tell you about this other one. You get, you got to look up the booby boys. And he, and he spelled it for <laughs> me. Like, All right, Lenny, is this something we want to talk about on the podcast? He said, just look them up, look them up. And I did. And Oh my gosh. I mean, when you talk about a violent crew, you know, and I know I, if, I, th- I would have thought I would have heard about that case just because of the Booby Boys. I mean, that's that's a name you don't forget. We're guys. You can't exactly. Hey, but you also
0: had another connection to this case too, because you were in um, where the trial was being held. You had brought up a Colombian national police officer, and you got a special request to do what?
2: Yeah. So uh, when we would ring the Colombian police officers up, but then in this particular case, I brought a captain up, Captain Moreno. Um, and we were in, interviewing some informants on some things going on in Colombia, And of course, while they're here, they want to go on shopping trips and things like that. So, um, I said, well, Captain, what, what specifically do you want to do? And he said, you know what? He said, isn't Manuel Noriega on trial here in Miami? And I said, yep. And he said, can we just go in and see him? I just like to see him in person. So we called our office with the U.S. Marshals and, and, uh, as they brought, him back, uh, brought Noriega back in after lunch, sitting at, you know, sitting at the defense table, before the judge and jury came in, the marshals allowed us to walk through the courtroom, and we got to see a little pineapple face sitting there. And, and when I say little, that describes him. I mean, you talk about a man with a Napoleon complex, holy cow.
0: As we say, he's a most
2: unfortunate-looking gentleman. (laughs) Mm, That's a very nice way to put it. (laughs) But his stature, too. I mean, just he was a very small person trying to—well, he wasn't trying. He was actually acting like a giant dictator. You know what? He got slapped down.
0: Yeah, he did when you control a little country like that. But eventually, guess what? It catches up with you. They played music, psyched him out, finally arrested him. And uh, we're going to get into that, though. But, Steve, we cannot find out about the story until I ask you one big question. Are you ready? To play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous fruit-friendly game of all—speaking of pineapple (laughs) face—the game of crimes.
2: (laughs) Hey, everybody, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here we go with Lenny Athus talking about Manuel Noriega and
0: the Booby Booby Boys. Boys. I finally said, screw this, we're going to start this podcast because these guys wanted to do old home week, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is all the good stuff, quit talking about this shit until we can hit record, so welcome back, everybody, we have got yet another fascinating issue uh, and person we're going to talk to, no, that's not Murph, Uh, he is
2: neither one of those. Uh, They all love hearing me, they like my country accent
0: like my country accent. That's Martha. Right. So but uh no hey look um he, his name is William but he goes by Lenny and it's not Atlas although you might think it's Atlas because you know he does carry the weight of the world on his shoulders uh with the work mm-hmm. he does now but it's Lenny <laughs> Atlas so hey Lenny you are the guest of honor welcome to the Game of Crimes podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Morgan. And it's an honor and a privilege to be here. That's, it's As I always say, to you say that here. now. You say that now. Wait till this is over. Uh, a
2: couple hours from now, you've been like, what the hell?
0: <laughs> well, where's the form I fell to get the last few hours of my life back?
2: How'd uh, I get away from these two guys? I can't even click off of here. They've got me locked in.
0: But I do want to mention something right up front. For all the shit Murph gives me, I want you to give your pal shit about being a trooper. Well, got a little interference there. Yeah, got a little interference. So, <laughs> yeah, we got a little interference, Lenny. So, hey, look, uh, it's technically William Lenny Athus or William L. Athys. You are now a. We'll talk about that later. A lawyer in private practice, but you started off as the highest. Uh, the highest thing you could possibly do, and then, you know, you, you went to DA, but let's talk about what the hell possessed you to even think about law enforcement in the first place. So, you know, you started off in Maryland, so where were you living at the time? Where'd you grow up?
1: Well, I I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, first few years I lived in a, in a place called Pikesville, which coincidentally enough is where the Maryland State Police Headquarters is located. And I went to Catholic school, and my name is William Leonard, and Catholic elementary school. The nuns decided there were too many Williams. A lot of people named their kids Williams in those days. So they decided I was a Leonard. Not uh not me or my mother or anyone else. The nuns did. So say and then thing, Leonard kid, just got... once they waved <laughs> the sign, pal, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, they pretty much it's it's not appealable. That's the that's the court of last resort. Anyway, so um it over the years my friends that I associated with and stuff. It just got shortened to Lenny, and that's where, here it is now, 70 years later, people still call me Lenny. So um, I grew up there, and uh, and then when I was 11, we moved uh, up to a town called Reicherstown, Maryland. It really wasn't very far, 10, 12 miles up the road north um, in Baltimore County is the is the subdivision. And one time, I went to Catholic school there too, uh, and one time, I think I was probably the sixth grade We took a field trip over to Washington, D.C., which is only 40-some miles away, so it was easy to do in school, and we took a tour of the FBI building, and I was so enamored with what I saw and heard and experienced that I said, I want to get into law enforcement, and that kind of just stuck with me uh, all the way through high school, and then um, I applied in my senior year of high school to become what is known as a cadet it's a program the Maryland State Police has where they will hire 18-year-old or, 18 or 19-year-old high school graduates right out of high school, and they put them in non-critical positions. In other words, uh, I was – me personally, uh, they sent me to a barrack that was the furthest away from where I lived in the western Maryland, in the mountains, Cumberland, Maryland. I've and been through the Cumberland
0: dude, Gap, man. You are, that is, you're no, say it's, it's beautiful, but it's out there, especially that fog in the morning where it's coming over the interstate there. And
1: it, uh, it, I still, uh, 60 years later, still have friends there that I hear about. Um, it is just. So what'd you do? Years what'd later? you do at the Seventy. So, so I, I worked the radio, uh, I would help at crime scenes and I would ride with the troopers on patrol to assist them at accident scenes with flares and things and you know whatever whatever happened and uh it was really a fantastic experience i lived in the barrack we took our meals in the barrack for the first uh, couple years i was there we had a chef that cooked the meals and back in those days the state police you didn't work eight hour shifts and go home uh you worked 10 10 hour shifts five days a week and if you worked night work. They would cut maybe down to nine, but, uh, and you took your meals in the barrack and, uh, it was a very, and there was no overtime.
0: If oh no, else. that was back before FLSA, what they call Fair Labor Standards Act. There was no 171 hours in a 28 day period, but I want to go back to that. So you said you were living there. Uh, it Was that just simply because it was too far to go back and forth or was that a requirement that you live in the barrack?
1: No, it was, it was because I didn't have anywhere else to live. Um, uh, they That was all for, I didn't have to stay there, but I, I was 150, 60 miles from where I
2: live. This sounds a little strange. Way, so. uh, the uh, the troopers bringing young boys to live in their barracks. Do y'all do that in Kansas? Oh, you did that with sheep. I'm sorry. I forgot about that. <clears throat> okay, go ahead.
0: <laughs> Murph, you don't?
1: Excuse me. Ex- ex- excuse me. Was there a city cop
2: interrupting us? Yeah, there was.
0: a little guy from Krusty Crotch, West Virginia. <laughs>
2: there was a real um, cop interrupting you. And I got both of you in one shot there. Did you catch that?
1: Oh, uh, shots fired. Lee Ermey okay. in, uh, in, uh, was it Lee Ermey in, uh, Arlie Ermey? Yeah. Arlie Ermey in full metal jacket. I think he was from out your way. Wasn't he, wasn't he from Iowa or Kansas? That I don't know. We'll have to look that up. Steve will, Steve has got access to the uh, Al Gore's amazing internet. We'll, we shall find out. I came to know a lot of the troopers from West Virginia when we were up there because we did stuff together a lot. And There's not very many of them, and they're a wonderful group of, uh, of law enforcement officers in West Virginia. Great people, too. A lot of our troopers in Western Maryland especially were originally from West Virginia, quite a, quite a few of them because it was so hard to get on the West Virginia State Police. Well,
0: yeah, and the kind of the unique thing about our area, yours, Virginia, because I'm in Loudoun County. I used to live not too far from Steve. Um, a lot of the folks that work here too, some of them actually live in West Virginia. They have to park their cars in, inside of Virginia, then they go home to West Virginia, or some of the folks in West Virginia go into Maryland. You know, we just see a lot of these folks around here that live in one state and work in another just because of the proximity of it.
1: Yeah, I, you know, that's... Yeah, I think it, when I was in the state police, I believe you had to live in Maryland in those days. I don't know if you still do or not.
0: But who uh, knows? Let me that. tell you, what, it's getting harder and harder to find people. Maybe you can just commute in, fly in from the coast, you know, and do your shift. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Probably. Well, Ma- Maryland uh, State Police was a very good outfit and, uh, and uh, long tradition, hundred years. Last year, and um, it's uh, it's just it was a great outfit. I mean, I really enjoyed my time there. I spent uh, two years and eight months there, and in January. In 1973, I went into the State Police Academy. I was 20 years old. I turned 21 in February of that year. And it's a six-month residential. You must live there. Um, academy and you're allowed to go home on the weekends if you don't have too many debarrets. To so I spent five of the weekends there. So
0: And we're going to ask you about the memos you had to write when you went to DEA because it sounds like you had to write a few. But we shall hold that. Don't say anything. <laughs> don't say anything. We we we, we want the, we want the magic to happen when we ask you the question. So but now you you did not go to college at this point. I know you went later, right? But at this point, um you just you worked uh as a cadet and then you went from being a cadet into the state police.
1: That is correct. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, the LEAP program, which was the Law Enforcement Officers Assistance Program, is what put me through college. And it was a good college, Loyola College in Baltimore. And they put me through and we had a fantastic lieutenant, uh, Glorioso, who... Who set all this up with Loyola College, and they would actually come to our headquarters building and teach the classes. Uh, I think my entire time, I maybe took one or two courses on campus, but the rest of them were at the State Police Academy. Wow! And it took a while. I mean, it was about five years. What you major in? Uh, but uh, sociology with a law enforcement option. Why sociology? Well, that was just one of one of the ones they offered, and it was kind of general, and I really didn't. I mean. That's it. the only things I've ever done in my life is I worked on a horse farm, growing up the whole time up in in uh, in Maryland, Vanderbilt's farm where the owners of. Um under Armour own that property. Now that was a uh, Vanderbilt property, right? Sagamore farm. I worked there for a number of years and I worked at a farm behind a number of years. So I shoveled a lot of horse manure in those years. Then I got in the state police. And, and then you met Murph and
0: you manure. had to shovel his horse manure. <laughs> oh, a hell oh, I a lot got DEA. That's
1: the mother of shoveling horse manure. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. I mean, I didn't know how to do anything else. I mean, I didn't take shop or uh, I, I took I did take metallurgy one year in in high school, and I figured sooner or later to be able to get to college and I did get a bunch of credits in the academy the six month academy we got a considerable amount of credits i don 't remember how many now, but then I got into the leap program and I just hung in there and finally uh, uh got through it and graduated
0: well let's let 's talk about though getting onto the road so it was a six month academy, so when you first got out um how do they – do you get your choice of where to go or, or is it at the pleasure of the – now, did you guys call it a colonel or a superintendent?
1: Uh, he was a colonel in rank, but both names were used. He was the superintendent of the Maryland State Police, but he, his rank was colonel, the only, the only full bird colonel in the state police um, hierarchy. And then, no, they decide. The state police decided where you went. You could put in a dream requests, but they ultimately decided where you so went. So what was your first post? What was your first uh, – I wanted to get away away from where I grew up. And you know, I wanted to go try some live in another place of the state, and they sent me to the same county. <laughs> I <grew up> in. <laughs> See, I got to tell you, there I don't know the
0: rationalization because when I got on the state patrol, I was a I was a city officer in Salina, Kansas. We had another guy that was in Olathe, and another guy that was in Garden City. So they take the guard, g- guy from Garden City, send him to Olathe. The guy from Olathe, send him to Salina, and they take me and Salina and move me to Garden <laughs> City. And I'm going. You could have just left me there. Oh no, 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 no. We, to your point, we want to move you away. You know, we don't want you working with the same people. I was arresting everybody I knew anyway. I was a cop. It's like, <laughs> yeah, anyway, anyway. But uh, so, but you, but as, as they say, it's at the pleasure of the, you know, the the state police or the state patrol and the pleasure of the colonel. So the pleasure of the colonel, he sent you back to a. Uh,
1: Baltimore. He did. Well, Baltimore County. We did, We don't really patrol or have any um, full-time offices in the city itself, uh, but we do in the surrounding all 23 counties where we have a presence and there's 23 counties in Maryland. We're in all of them. And in this particular county, Baltimore County, where I grew up, had at the time two barracks, the Valley Barrack and the Randallstown Barrack. And I started out the Valley Barrack and I really liked it there. Where was that
0: located at in relation to Baltimore?
1: Um... Well, there's a road that runs through Baltimore. It's called Interstate 83. And then around Baltimore is a beltway called Interstate 695. And at the time, Valley Barrack, which is the name of it, was located in a complex of state offices. They had the State Roads Commission there. And I don't remember what else. And it was at the intersection of 695 and Interstate 83, that general area right there. And you, you have a beltway that goes around Baltimore. So that's you, you predominantly you do that. But we were a full service state police. So we could also uh, and did frequently handle criminal matters.
0: Now, did you guys do contract policing for smaller jurisdictions or cover any towns like that?
1: When I, at that time, no. And when I was in uniform, no. But they, they since did that. I think I was still with them when they started doing that. Different uh, municipalities would, would pay them and they would do that. But um, at that time, when I was on the road, because I was on the road from June of, while well, Academy was January, I graduated in June. From June 1973 until April 1976, I was in uniform. And then I went uh, into narcotics on in April of
0: 1976. So uh, let's talk a little bit. Of, one thing I'm always fascinated in, and you know, if you guys are listening to this, you have to be fascinated too, because I'm asking the question. So um, let's talk about yeah, what, yeah, let's talk about the uniform, because you know, one of the things that's always distinctive. Every every state agency wants to have their own look and everything, but. Uh, um, so when you got out of the academy, your, like your car and your equipment, You know what were you guys – what was the standard issue for the Maryland State Police at that point?
1: Six-inch barrel, 38 specials that were probably used in the First World War. <laughs> <laughs> the one inch? they gave me Holy in the academy cow. was great when we were doing single action. Then we go out to the outside range, and about every third round, it would fire. <laughs> so, uh, it was really old. really old. And the ammo um, dumps too? Did you load them? No, no, we had little, the eighteen little uh, loops. Oh, and we had, yeah, I know
0: that, dude, that. I thought to be, I thought we had ammo dumps at first. I thought that was bad, but yeah,
1: loading them one at a time—that's like, that's like the wild west. Now you could be probably uh, no, you could never even get by wearing an ammo bo- uh, ammo dump box back in those days, and it was one hundred and fifty-eight grain copper-coated lead. It would probably bounce off of a stick, but that's what they gave us. I mean, and, uh, and I, I had a rather quickly, I, I mean, I was kind of really gung ho. I'd started when I was right out of high school and every day I had, a I took all of my shirts to a cleaners and they were military pressed with medium starch and we had collar ornaments. We had a badge, a shooting metal, and then you all brass. We had a brass buckle, Sam Brown belt, brass belt keepers with little brass tabs on them, leather with brass tabs. And then you had your bullets and every day, I was in uniform. I polished every bullet, every button. You didn't polish your badge and you didn't polish your uh, shooting medal. You did polish your nameplate and your collar ornaments and your belt buckle and keepers and bullets. So um, we had this guy, um, God God rest his soul. Uh, He ended up retiring. He was um, a green beret in the reserves and died in a parachute accident after he died. But Dave Horan, he was about six foot four. He was huge. And he gave me the nickname "the rag" because I carried around a little piece of terry cloth. If I touch anything, I would, I would uh, brush I it off. I thought I was, was O.C. You sound just like him. <laughs>
2: oh, oh, my. oh my gosh! I apologize to our listeners. We got a, we got Morgan and Morgan Jr. on here today. I think.
1: Well, I was young, and you know, a bro- new broom sweeps clean. <laughs> That's right, man.
0: And I tell you what, it's a source of pride too because you never know when you're going to have if some some sergeant was going to pull an inspection on you, you know, and. Um, you never know when you might be called upon. A couple times I had to transport the governor, so your vehicle had to be spick and span, top to bottom. So, you know, Steve, it was an awesome responsibility. Something I know you're not accustomed to, but uh, I, we were I used guess, to actually yeah. looking good and feeling good at the same time.
2: Yeah, because that, that, that does make you a better police officer, doesn't it? When you got shiny stuff on your uniform.
0: Let me tell you what it makes. It makes these people know you got your shit squared away. Is because you ain't you mess with me, dude. I, I'm squared away from tip to toe. You know, it's like. They they don't mess with you when you got a when you got a shiny uniform when you got a mm-hmm. clean press uniform a shiny badge and a shiny car you screw with that I, pal you're going to jail. I'll go
2: with that with Lenny you not so much <laughs>
0: <laughs> well back to our regularly scheduled podcast with Lenny so uh, and, you know the other thing too I remember up until just about maybe seven eight years ago all the Maryland State Police cars were still using low band radio so they had that god awful nine foot whip antenna. Yeah, on there. And, yeah. <laughs> and those things got to whipping so bad. I saw a couple of the offside that sh- assumed they were playing jokes. They would do what the truckers do. They took a tennis ball, cut a little hole in it, you know, put it on top of their antenna, but that thing would whip back and forth.
1: Yeah. Holy yeah, cow. That's what they had. And uh, then they went to sort of a uh, base mounted shorter ones after a couple of years when I was on, Wait, after they took away our traditional color, which was black and olive and replaced it with Yellow, we look like a lemon riding around. Oh, it was horrible. Everybody hated it.
2: Just, just <laughs> it somebody like
1: decided to change the, uh, a bright yellow. I still wrecked those cars, so it didn't help me. You know, Everybody look bags. out. It's...
2: Everybody look out. Here comes Big Bird.
0: Oh, my God. Yellow. Ca- I'm sorry. Yellow cars. You Somebody confused you with the taxi. Hello, I need a ride home. You know? They were pretty bad. They really were. <laughs>
1: Sure now you, they've gone back to the traditional
0: colors. Yes, they have. They look. They actually look pretty good. So um, when you were when you first started out, what's one of the first uh, kind of big hairy ass calls you remember getting into?
1: Well, I hadn't been after you get out of the academy. Of course, you ride with a, a more senior trooper for a number of months or days or whatever. I don't remember how long it was, but I, I want to say it was. Well, I got out in June, so it was in just um, up there. I can remember things because of the difference in the in the weather the time of the year can't do that here too much in florida but i remember it was starting to get a little cold so i'm going to say it was september maybe october so i was by myself but i hadn't been been cut loose all that long but a while and i saw this guy with texas plates uh, weaving a little bit so i said eh, what's wrong matter with him so i pulled him over and i forget i think he was he was drinking and then i smelled some marijuana in the car so I got him out and handcuffed him uh, after I get him and arrested him for for driving under the influence and he had, I think he had a couple joints or something in the ashtray and popped him for that. So I had him handcuffed, no problem. I find a gun under the seat, revolver. So I call into that and then uh, and then I'm waiting to call for a tow truck and I'm waiting uh, for the tow truck to get there. And I'm going to take him to the barrack and offer him a uh, sobriety test breathalyzer. And so then before he gets, I said, well, let me make an inventory of what's in the trunk. So it says Texas plates. I open up the trunk and it's completely, absolutely stuffed with marijuana. Personal use. He was trying. He was. He was transporting marijuana. It's just personal use get to get him from
2: Texas up to Maryland.
1: So, so that was kind of cool. And did I remember have, my. Did he have a medical marijuana card? That's all I wanted. <laughs> they didn't. That that wasn't around back in those days.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got a trunk full of the stuff. Well, I I think long term. I'm a prepper, so I need you know a few years worth, just in case I get stuck in the mountains. So. But is that because, you know, obviously we're going to talk later about getting into DEA and you said later, uh, you know, we got on state police, you work narcotics. When did the when did the narcotics bug hit? When did you decide, I like working dope?
1: Well, when I was a cadet, um, we had a, a very uh, well-known commander of the narcotics section. He, he ended up being a lieutenant colonel when he retired, Frank Mazzone. And Frank was well-known. He really, um, in the 60s and 70s just really did a great job with the narcotic section of the Maryland state police. And his brother was also a trooper who also ended up being a Lieutenant colonel. He was a friend of mine. He was a year older than me, but he was a friend of mine. And he and I went down to a place called ocean city, Maryland, which is uh, loaded with people. I mean, just, it's unbelievably packed in the summer and we did a little undercover stuff down there when we were cadets, because we were so young, you know, nobody would think we were cops and, and we were able to help effectuate a couple of arrests. So that was kind of cool. And I kind of liked that and I thought it was neat, but I still like, you know, I liked after that was before I went through the Academy and then I got out and I liked all the, uh, you know, all the pomp and circumstance of saluting and the cars, nice cars and the chases and, and the adrenaline really rolls when you get an armed robbery in progress and you're 21 years old and you say, I hope I can talk when I get there. You're so scared, but you do it anyway, because that's the way you're trained and that's what you committed your life to doing. So we've had stuff like that. And and then, um, probably the real kicker was, um, and I won't go into any names, um, or too much detail, but there was, um, a couple of ladies that worked in one of the courts that I frequented and they were really nice. They were the clerks and stuff and, and they were related. And one day I was there, I had a case and I was waiting for the proceedings to begin. And the one lady got a phone call from one of her children said, couldn't wake up the other child. So they asked me if I could give her a ride. And I said, well, to home, she didn't have a car. I said, well, certainly as long as the judge lets, you know, says it's okay. So when I see the judge, he said, yeah. So we get in the car and I'm not thinking anything. This child was 15 or 16, I guess. And on the way up, this uh, clerk asked me, "Well, is there any type of drug that could cause this?" Of course, I had to say, "Yeah." Well, I think my my child's using drugs, so I called for an ambulance to meet us there. And it was, and then we went code three, license iron, siren, and we got there, and the ambulance crew was standing on the porch and with very somber looks on her face. Make a long story short, um, I took her home to find her daughter dead from a drug overdose, and um, I kind of just. That really bothered me. I was probably 22. So, uh, Do you times, know what kind of maybe, drugs it was? I don't remember now. It's been so long. But I had to stay there and the medical examiner came and all that. And I, I kind of told myself, well, you know what? If I were to do this for the rest of my career and I stopped one family from going through this, it would be worth it. And that's, I mean, it might sound corny, but it's the truth. And that's really the way I felt. And so when I had an opportunity, I got into narcotics in uh, April 1976 what What did you have to do to to move off the
0: road into narcotics? Did they do any kind of testing or evaluations or you just put in for it?
1: you put in for it and and then they would if interview if they wanted but the director knew or one of the guy one of the directors knew me from working with his brother and and um, and I'd made a lot of narcotic arrest at the barrack uh, as a uniform guy. I locked up a lot of people for drugs on the road and different things so you know I kind of had a had that going for me and they brought me in. What was
0: the, was marijuana the biggest uh, drug during that time? Or did you run into some other stuff?
1: Oh, no. Marijuana was probably one of the lessers, cocaine and, uh, and heroin, LSD. I remember uh, one, uh, one time, one of my first uh, undercover operations, I was just, we'd just go hang out. Just go hang out in an area and make friends. Usually you'd have an informant to introduce you like his cousin that just moved back or, you know, some story you come up with. And they were selling capsules that they called THC, which stands for tetrahydrocannabinol, the active ingredient in marijuana. And in reality, when we sent them to the lab, what they were was, if you remember back in those days, fencyclidine, PCP. Mm-hmm. yeah, Which is a horrible drug. And they didn't even know what they were taking. Just like the stuff they're doing with fentanyl today. I mean, people don't even know they're taking fentanyl and they're dying. So that, you know, that used to happen that, and I bought some LSD, I bought mushrooms. Uh, I held a guy's arm while he fired heroin going up 270 one time. Now, wait a minute. Say that again. Yeah. I. I One time I went, met some people in Frederick, Maryland. We went down to Washington, D.C. and and bought heroin. They actually had to go in and get it. They wouldn't sell it to me. I didn't know these guys. I just, I'd met them. I had an informant in the car, but there's two other guys I met that that he knew, and we all hung out. And then we went down to D.C. and bought heroin. And coming back up, he wanted to do it, and he's sitting in the, in the seat next to me, so I held his arm while he fired the heroin into his arm. <sighs> he had a needle with him, and he passed out. I thought, I said, well, wow, I was hoping he's not dead, but um, that's but he Dear Colonel, okay nobody
0: was it. more surprised
2: than me when uh... <laughs> he went on the nod. You know, they yeah, he went that. on the nod. He yeah. did it on
1: the nod. Um, so they went to jail later. They gave sold me the heroin. Did you,
0: because um, right now you look like, you know, the, the, the lawyer type that you are. You didn't, you know, were you, when you were working uh, narcotics, did you work plain clothes as just a trooper? I mean, looking like a detective or did you actually work undercover? Did you grow your hair out, look scroungy? Oh, no, 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 no.
1: I, I, I had the bell-bottom pants, the fluffy sleeves. I had a mood ring. I had an earring. And if I let my hair like grow down to here, down back to my nose, I look like a poodle. <laughs> the longer my hair gets, the more it curls up. I used to get stopped all the time by the police because I look and I had a big Fu Man chew mustache.
2: Looked like a poodle. That's big funny. Big buggy
1: eyes. And it's and, and I my hair was like out to here. It was unbelievable. I mean it was uh I look like a poodle. <laughs> <laughs> Real curly. It curls up. <laughs> I had a friend, I had a, a friend of mine that ultimately came to DEA and retired, and I just saw him last week. His name is Frank Rose. He retired from DEA as a as a pilot. And Frank came in there. We worked in uniform together and we went into narcotics at the same time together. And Frank did not cut his hair or shave his beard for six years. People would give him drugs, they were so afraid of him. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, it was a different time back in those days. And uh, I'd go up, they'd send me, I was on, uh, after I got in, they'd sent me to Western Maryland or, or some other part of the state and I'd stay in a cheap hotel because they didn't give you much money. Oh, no. Uh, and you had and, to account, uh, you had to have receipts for your dinner oh, yeah, and your food. And yeah. Everything, everything. And then they would say, okay, um, just call once a day so we know you're alive. <laughs> so, that was it. I mean, things that DEA would never in a thousand years do, but uh that's just the way they did it back then. We were
0: tougher. Troopers were tougher. We didn't need all this fancy hand holding. By God, one trooper, one riot, one ranger, that's all it took, right?
2: <laughs> that's, that's, hey, here's who I, a, that's who I call every time I have a flat tire is a trooper. Yes, it is.
0: <laughs> and then when they find well, Kansas, all the dope in here. your car, yeah, Kansas, yeah. Hey, by the way, here's a little factoid. Here's a little trivia. During the 1990s, do you know where almost all of the world's LSD came from? I do not. A missile silo in Wamego, Kansas, not too far from where I was grew up as as a Ute. I was born at Fort Riley. So, during the nineteen nineties, these guys converted an old Atlas missile silo, a Cold War uh, Atlas E missile silo. The guy made some money. He turned it into an LSD factory. So this is almost like Breaking Bad, you know, all the meth come. So uh, the all. In fact, it, it came on blotters that had a picture of like, a looked like a naked woman on a bicycle, the mountains in the background, it said 1943 on the bottom, because that's when some of those started being built. So it was like, there's just an interesting factoid for you. Little Kansas, can you believe that? Just in those missile silos, they were all over the place. People forget. They were, uh, you know, we we used to find the concrete pads where they, you know, capped them and did stuff like that. But they were all over Kansas because it's the middle of the United States. And if the Russians ever
1: attacked, we could fire back. Yeah, that that's amazing. No, I did not did not know that. Did they they ultimately catch the guy, or was it just years later they found?
0: Oh no, out? no, no. They they caught him when it was going on. They ended up making the case. But uh, basically, this guy had like forty thousand bucks. He did some remodeling, and all of a sudden, he brought another guy in, and they said, "Hey, we could make LSD." And pretty soon, you know, <laughs> really during the nineties, the majority of the LSD in the world was coming. I didn't re- and I did not know this at the time because they never really said anything about it. You know, until later. So, anyway, we I digress. Back to our regularly scheduled podcast.
2: There. Just an aside. always about Kansas with
0: you. What's up with that? Oh, hey, I'm a Kansas oh. farm boy. You talked about being a farm boy, Lenny. It's like, you know, you know what it's like? You grew up on a farm. You do good stuff. You know, you work on a farm. So yeah.
2: the um, difference is we're the, the difference is we're interviewing Lenny, not Morgan. Hey, by the way, I did find uh, Lee Ermy was born in Emporia, Kansas.
1: There you go. Lyons County.
2: 1944.
1: Oh, he was fantastic, wasn't he? He oh, was What, what a show. Full Metal Jack was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, to this day, when I smell horse manure, it still smells good to me. I mean, I shoveled so much. Oh, my
2: gosh. Oh, we, I mean,
1: we, that's, I mean, the first thing you do at six o'clock in the morning, you'd have X amount of stalls you'd have to clean, and then you'd, you know, muck them out and put the muck in there, and then you go spread the muck. And, you know, I mean, it never hurt me. Oh. That I know of, anyway. (laughs) But, uh, I had a horse growing up. I mean, I, I, I loved all this stuff, hunting and fishing. And I actually went to Kansas once on a quail hunt with my now deceased father-in-law, and it was beautiful. Gosh, it was really nice. Do you remember where you went? No. We flew into Kansas City, and we drove a couple hours from there, but I don't remember. Okay, yeah, because so there's – I mean,
0: after the, after the first Gulf War, Schwarzkopf uh-huh. came out to Scott County, Kansas. Beautiful pheasant hunting out there when pheasant season starts. You know, in November, some of the best pheasant hunting you know in the in the United States. And we actually had a chance to run into and meet the general while he was out there doing the same thing. But oh, cool! That's because they got milo fields. You know, after they cut those down in cornfields and wheat fields, those pheasant, quail, everything they just they love that kind of stuff.
1: Well, my father-in-law loved quail hunting. He was originally from Missis. Well, he was from Mississippi. World War II vet. Great guy, great patriot, and uh, he's gone now. But he loved quail hunting more than anything, and he liked the fish and everything too. But he loved quail hunting, so we went out there quail hunting. I um, I started with him actually. We went to South Dakota, and that started me on a trek uh, for 16 straight years. I went to South Dakota pheasant hunting every October. Wow, wow! And uh, fe- pheasant hunting is just great. We fly in, into uh, Sioux Falls, and then drive about an hour and a half, two hours, to a place. Stay the same place all but uh, two, two all but one of the years stay the same place. And it was, it was great. I'm getting a little old now and the walking doesn't agree with me as much as it used well, to. Well, now you can just go need.
0: down to the water's edge and, you know, go hunt gators.
1: Yeah. I, I'm on a hunting lease actually here. Um, it's two and a half hours from where I live, 175 miles from where I live, but it's West of Melbourne and, um, it's, uh, Deseret Ranch it's called. And, um, we have a 9,000 acre ranch lease there. And we hunt, um, deer and wild Turkey and, um, uh, Wild hogs, a lot of wild hogs and coyotes.
2: After you and I had our phone call, I looked that up. That does look like a pretty decent place.
1: Oh, it's huge. I mean, uh, our, our lease is almost 9,000 acres.
0: Yeah, I knew a bunch of DEA agents that hunted wild turkey, too. Unfortunately for them, they always found it in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I,
1: I, 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 when I was in Columbia with DEA, I got into scotch, so I got away from that. That's how that. anyway, yeah, i got to our single reg- scotch now. Yeah,
0: back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So you were working dope. Um, and you know, you started doing these things, but you were on the road, you were at Maryland state police, you said for 11 years, right?
1: A total counting my cadet time from uh, August, 1970 until the end of actually January, 19, um 80, one, 1981.
0: Did you, during that time, uh,
1: obviously you worked some cases with DEA? Um, not not so much not so much now i mean i knew a bunch of those guys and i got to know them and i liked them and they helped me out on a couple of things that i was looking at but it, it just didn't there wasn't a tremendous amount of uh joining of forces in those days we worked some with some of the county police departments and we had different teams the state was kind of divided up and i was on the western team for a while and didn't really work with anyone there other than uh, i worked with some guys from the attorney general's office one time um of Maryland, but they were troopers, uh, on a different thing. And then um, we we would work with the county police. After I got on the Baltimore team, uh, Baltimore County a lot police because they have a huge police department. Their police department is as big as the state police. And then the Anne Arundel County police, I worked a real nice case with them. But I think I was with DEA when I worked with them at that point. So, what made you then? So,
0: talk to us about your transition then from the state police. What? give you the bug because you got 10 years in, I mean, you know, eight years technically is a full time, you know, full sworn, but you got the, so what gave you the bug? What made you decide, Hey, I want to go to the feds.
1: I, I I didn't just like buying drug drugs from small time dealers and letting it go. I knew there was a lot more to it. I mean, I knew there were people who were organizing this and who were, who were trafficking in drugs on them on a major scale internationally and that borders and um, boundaries didn't mean anything to them. And you have a limited ability in the state police. We had uh, a couple of nice cases that I, they weren't my cases. I just participated in them and they followed some guys to Florida and got, uh, we ultimately ended up with a couple tons of of marijuana and that was a lot in the seventies. And, you know, and then there were some other people that would pop up. I had one guy that I I ended up uh, doing a court-authorized state police wiretap on, but I never got enough to get him. And he was flying all over the country, Holland, Greece, Italy, South America. And he ultimately died of a cocaine overdose or a drug overdose of some sort or another in Greece. So, I mean, all this stuff was going on and and I just didn't really, I mean... I felt like we we were limited, and one of the things the state police did, and I'm sure you you'll remember this, Morgan, and you too, Steve, is upper level management ha- always has a a varied set of tools that they use to make sure that you are totally one thousand percent compliant. And the state police, if you if you if anything at all happened, and you would disagree with it in the narcotics section, they says, "Well, oh, I'm sorry, maybe we can find a radar gun to fit your hand," and that would like be a constant threat over your head. <laughs> And, you know, we, we had been in there and we had this kind of stuff, you know, we did and the experiences we had, not too, once some guys would want to go back, but I did not want to go back to uniform. Um, I, I just didn't. And, um, and I worked and got my college degree and then I applied to DEA. And um,
0: at what point through your Maryland state police career, did you finally finish up your bachelor's degree? Was that towards the end when you were leaving? Yeah, or did so you it, do it like in the middle? Like
1: two years before I left, I think, because it took about two years to get hired okay. by DEA. Yeah, because, you know, I, I did the same
0: thing, too. Actually, while I was working, I went back and got two more degrees. Um, and so balancing kids, you know, juggling schedules and doing stuff, it, it takes a lot to go, you know, do that kind of stuff. And
1: Well, I, I, I didn't know whether DEA was going to hire me, so I also took the LSAT, which is a law school acceptance test. And I figured, well, if that doesn't work. You know, I, I just didn't – I was really starting to grow a little weary of the threats uh, put you back in uniform or whatever. And, and really, a- as a narcotic detective at that time, it's different now. You, you, it wasn't much in, in terms of doing cases that took your brains, like long-term involved historical conspiracies. Yeah, we did wiretaps and things like that. But the conspiracy statutes of the state of Florida were kind of ridiculous, um, in my opinion. This you mean opinion. Yeah, I mean Maryland. Yeah, in Maryland. because um,
0: But they're probably ridiculous in Florida too,
1: huh? Uh, nah, Florida's a little more law and order state. I mean, uh, Maryland is
2: so left, it's crazy how left it is. And when, I'm not, when I was still living there in Northern Virginia, it seemed like it really went off to the left.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and uh, you're limited. You're going to get old. You're not going to be able, or, you know, maybe you could get promoted, but you're going to have to leave to get promoted. And I really like that kind of work. And I, I really I, I, I did a couple of the best that I could do in Maryland. I know one time we had a, a group that was going around. And getting deluded from dentists, uh, faking TMJ, the guy could he had TMJ, because He clicked his jaw, and he was, I mean, just hitting. So, I mean, you could throw throw a pin at a map around the Baltimore area, and he was hitting dentists several a day. And I got the county, uh, Baltimore County, interested, and and we ended up indicting. But my gosh, I think he had like I don't know, fifty or sixty counts, and I had this ream of warrants nothing got tied together. I mean, it just, it just didn't lend itself to that in those days. Maybe it's different now. I don't know. But to me, the greatest tool that, that we had in a narcotic section was the federal conspiracy statutes um, and conspiracy historical conspiracies are what's taken down every major criminal and criminal organization for, for the most part, not every, but for most of them, vast majority of them than anything else because it's just such a great tool.
0: Well, yeah. and when I was going through training, even the, some of the DEA stuff and some of the other folks, we got some history on that. And it was like – I'm not sure if it was like maybe New York, but somebody started finally realizing like maybe mid-60s that, hey, the conspiracy to do X is the, actually the same penalty for actually doing X. Mm-hmm. So conspiracy to traffic, conspiracy to you know, commit robbery. So it's like we don't have to have the dope all the time to make a case. You know? and,
1: and, I, and that goes back to what I was saying. I knew there were people controlling this. and You're not going to catch them with the drugs in their hands. We tried that once. We we had a case I had in DEA in, in Baltimore. We tried that, trying buying our way up. We spent 50 grand and we got like one level higher. And, you know, back then, I mean, not even now it's a lot of money, but it's nothing, it's nothing to these people, that kind of money. It's absolutely nothing to a major drug trafficker. And, I mean, he'll spend that in a, in a long weekend partying somewhere. Uh, and you didn't really have the tools to be able to do it in the state police and pretty much you didn't have the mindset of the supervision either. Um, they had, they had their marching orders from those above them and, and you know, the stuff that impact that had the greatest impact immediately is, is what they really had to do uh, to keep everyone happy. And, and it's understandable. I mean, uh, cause some of these cases you might go three, you know, i had a case D 8 three, four years before they come to fruition. But,
0: yeah, but see, that's the difference. You said, you know, at the state level or stuff, when they're concerned about statistics and dealing with the legislature and getting budget, you know, and you're having to turn and burn, you know, it's like, you know, we didn't have stats. Yeah, they didn't, you know, there were no such thing. People always say, well, you have a quota. No, we didn't have a quota, but, you know, considering the amount of traffic out there, it was expected that you could write a certain amount of tickets and check a certain amount of trucks and arrest a certain amount, you know, of of drunk drivers. You get some people, they'd come in for a whole day and they'd have nothing or maybe one warning, you're going Come on, pal. Uh, you know, you got cars just, you know,
1: you can throw a stone and hit 20 traffic violations. I had one guy, a friend of mine, state police, uh, pulled on the side of interstate 695 and turned his, uh, flashing, you know, blue and red light on and worked radar. He got a bunch of people <laughs> just to see if it, it Well, worked. there you go. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he was, getting them right left. He's sitting there with a the red light on and, they get, and he got them, so.
0: Uh, let me tell you, if you've seen somebody, I just coming back from Tyson's corner today, uh, and, uh. Just seeing the people that are out there that have no, just no awareness. They drive like now, like they did, you know, 30 years ago. But anyway, we digress here. So getting back to that. So um, you put in, uh, you said you did the LSAT. Did you put in for anything else? Because you, you said you were enamored by the FBI. Did you apply for the
1: bureau? Oh, no, I was never enamored by them. <laughs> now, By their building.
2: <laughs> the building.
1: No, I, uh, oh, oh here, we, here we go. Okay. I mean, I, I,
0: well, you said you were
1: enamored. As, as you, a child. You visited the FBI. As a child.
2: Okay, and then you no, know he said he was hammered. He'd been in the bar, and he came he'd out. He been hammered. hammered. Uh,
1: I, I I didn't, I, I didn't really. The once I was in law enforcement. Now you know I had almost eleven years in at this point, and and I was thinking, you know, I, I didn't, I, I ran across some FBI agents and talked to him, and it seemed like that they were pretty pretty well restrained in what they could do as well. Um, uh, they didn't get much much freedom. And and DEA when I when when I first came to DEA in 1981. I know several of them guys who left the FBI to come to DEA. We had people leaving every law enforcement job you can imagine to come to DEA. It was, it was just um, unbelievable. In the early years of, of Reagan, um, when he, when he was president and that, that whole time frame and it was, uh, it was just amazing. I mean, you could, what you could do and I couldn't believe it. I mean, the grand jury, we never did an investigative grand jury that. That I ever recall. I mean, maybe they did it somewhere else, but I never did it in the state system. But I got onto that, and uh, some of the older agents in Baltimore who were really good at it, uh, and that was exactly what I wanted to do. And man, I just and you know, the FBI is a great outfit. I'm not knocking them; they they do good work. But it just it just didn't seem to that me that wasn't your cup of tea. No, I didn't. I don't want to see who's taking the Russian books out of the library. I mean, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, your mama too. Yeah, too. <laughs> Speak Russian. So, uh, oh, wow, cool. um, but going back to that, though, you said you took the set. Why would you want to be a lawyer at that point? What kind of lawyer? And if you did, what kind of lawyer were you trying to be?
1: Well, I, didn't really, I really hadn't progressed that far along. But, you know, once you get a piece of paper from an institution of higher learning, no one can ever take that away from you. If you got your Juris Doctorate, it's yours forever. Unless you do something that, you know, or did something dishonest to get it or whatever. And I, I guess, you know, all the to keep you in line threats, uh, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, you know, I could make somebody angry and maybe I'm totally innocent and, and they could take all this away from me. And I not matter. Like
0: because they do it because they have the power. I used to work for somebody like that. I won't mention where, but they were like, they always kind of threaten you with the job. And it's like, look, pal, I was looking for a job when I came here. Mm-hmm. You know, let's stop with it. And you know what? That's bad. That that's, that's, those people are managers. They're not leaders. They're managers. And there's a difference between being a manager and a leader, but, uh, So thank God you didn't become an attorney at that time.
1: (laughs) Well, there's, there's a lot of great attorneys, trust me. And not every, not every, I'm just saying every attorney, I'm just talking about at that time is a bleeding liberal. There's a lot of real conservative. So we can't, we can't do lawyer jokes. Oh, absolutely. You can I do it all the time. I have a number of lawyer jokes, but they would not be fit for a podcast.
0: (laughs) Oh, dude, we talk about everything. You know, what's the difference? What's it, what's brown and black and looks good on a lawyer? Uh, Doberman. Oh, okay. <laughs> our art. Thank you very much. You know why lawyers wear ties? To keep the foreskin from yeah. slipping yeah. over yeah, their heads. Uh, <laughs> I, got, I got all of these. <laughs> uh, What's it? Okay, here's one. <laughs> no, I won't say that one. that one. That one, I'll tell you offline. Anyway, but back to our regularly scheduled podcast here. So um, you put in for DEA. Did you, was it, did you get hired right away? Was there, was, because was there
1: a freeze? Did you have to wait? No, it took me two two cycles to get get hired. First time I didn't get picked up. Uh, the second time I did. And, and it, 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 here it is. so, so they do my background and I get a letter, congratulations, you're going to be in the next class. And I'm happy, you know, I, I haven't actually got the orders to report, but I'm told, you know, everything's done, you've passed, you'll be in the next class. And then it was the end of December, around Christmas time. Uh, probably before Christmas, I get a letter from them. Due to minority hiring constraints, you won't be in this class. You'll be in another class. All right, well, and the state police people, because they went into my office and interviewed, you know, a bunch of people and all that. I could see what the writing on the wall. They transferred me to the furthest part in narcotics over to the DC team. I lived in Baltimore. I mean, Western Maryland, Baltimore uh, metropolitan area or Northern Maryland was all right there. The, the, the Eastern shore, they didn't have enough spots. So they probably would have sent me down there. So they sent me to the DC team, which meant I'm going to have to move. And and I could tell just from the temperature in the room that uh, I was viewed as disloyal and that was a big deal to them. So then I go to lunch a couple days after Christmas and they call me on the radio. There were no, Pagers or phones, cell phones, or any of that back in, the, in that time, and said, so "Call DEA." They call me on the radio, so I call down DEA and says, "Do you still want the job?" I go, "Yes." Yeah. Well, we had two people didn't show up this morning. Come down now and get sworn in. <laughs> so I drove down to the federal <laughs> building in downtown Baltimore, went in, got sworn in, and I was in the next class. I was sworn in as a special agent with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, and then I get back to the office and. We had this little redheaded um uh four letter word of a supervisor. He he was just an idiot. He, and he starts screaming at me for taking a couple hours for lunch. And I said, Time out, hold on. Hold on. What do you mean? On, hold Skippy. on. Screaming at me. What do you mean? I said, Before you say anything else, I quit. I was down getting sworn in as an agent. He got so mad. He went in his office and kicked his trash can across the room, grabbed his coat and left. So that tells you where he, where, where he
0: was. Somebody doesn't play. Yeah, Timmy doesn't play well with others. You know, he takes his toys
1: and goes home. And you every know? time I saw him after that, I just laughed, started laughing at him as soon as I saw him.
2: And then I left and went to DEA. And... But you know, how many, how many of us would love to be able to do what you got to do that day? Hey, hey <laughs> oh, Buckley, he was, shut the hell up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that that little that little pain in the ass, he, you'd write a report and we typed them in rough. He'd put big red marks on it and change it. So you'd keep them. And this didn't one just me. It was like everybody. And he'd write the next report the way he changed it. He'd put big red marks and change it back the way he had it the first time. Oh. Uh, oh, he was uh, he was just a pain in the ass. Uh, you know, we man- you run into people like man that, man and-
0: They they do it simply because they can. These people who've never had power or leadership before, they do it simply because they can. You know? And those are the worst kind of people.
1: But, you know, I was, had proven myself disloyal. And so I was, you know, pretty much persona non grata. So I thank goodness DEA did pick me up. And uh, there were several people in my class that had happened to, but guys that were supposed to show up to be sworn in, just didn't show up. They don't fill them, they lose them. Yeah. Hey, sucks to be them. You got to
0: fill slots. So, hey, look, you know what they call the guy who graduated at the bottom of his class in medical school? Doctor, doctor, <laughs> doctor. It doesn't doesn't matter, man. You got you, top or bottom. You're in the class. So now you're in the class. But let's talk about getting into DEA now. So um, when you when you got on, where was the academy at? They're in DC or did you go to in Washington? It was yeah. in
1: Washington, 1405 I Street, the old headquarters. Uh, we were the last class they had there. We were in. I was in DEA basic agents class number 17
2: wasn't there a strip uh, club on, in the first floor of that building uh
1: I, I think it was a strip club after a certain hour it was called the golden eagle it was a bar up until a certain hour i don't know if they, they might have stopped the strip we weren't allowed in there we couldn't even walk into place
2: and, and you know what at the de academy now what's the name of the of the uh, evening bar they have there
1: don't, is it like the golden eagle Oh, is it?
2: Okay. It's the Golden Eagle. <laughs>
1: now, I've only been to, to Quantico with DEA one time for a retirement seminar. It's like being in a gerbil cage. <laughs>
0: Did- leave it to leave it to DEA to cut your travel time down to the strip clubs by simply just
1: bringing it right there to yeah. the academy. Well, we way couldn't to win. go, guys. We weren't allowed. I mean, if we set foot in there, we were you know, toast. Well, well that we way, if you're there, up all night, you can
2: crawl up to your desk. You can work we stayed, the next day.
1: We stayed at Seven Corners. That's where we had some uh, apartments, long-term apartments, and we stayed there. So it was a drive, even, I mean, with subway and, and buses well, or however. With having it
0: down there, how did you, how, how did you guys do your – where did you guys do your PT and, uh, you know, your shooting and stuff like that? Well, they
1: had a gym right next door to it. So we, we we'd run up and down the steps. It was narrow, but it was tall. And it had a full-size basketball court, so that was enough to do the PT. And then our shooting, we had a range over that uh, used to belong to another government agency. That um, was very, you'd, you'd never know it was there, over uh, right at the edge of Georgetown, indoor range. And We did our indoor stuff there. Then we did our outdoor stuff down at Quantico.
0: Man, you guys had to go
1: all over the place. We did. We did. It was a great school, though. It really was a good school. I really enjoyed it. And what
2: year was that? That was 1980?
0: 1981. eighty-one. Eighty-one. Yeah, and that was the war on drugs, Reagan, you know, things were things were picking up. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I remember, uh, um, you know, hearing him talk about it and, uh, you know, seeing just the difference, you know, in fact, it was funny. You mentioned that one of the guests we had on earlier, Jeff Sandy, by the way, uh, Steve, I will be in, when you guys hear this podcast, it'll be past that, but I'll be in uh, Charleston, West Virginia tomorrow. I called, uh, Jeff, Jeff and Tom are going to take me out to an early lunch tomorrow oh, in Charleston. Cool. Very cool. So Jeff, Jeff Sandy was an IRS agent. And, uh, but one of his claims to fame was during the, during the uh, uh, presidential campaign, Nancy Reagan got to like him so much she asked him. So for six months, he was assigned to the presidential oh, wow. detail everywhere they went. Yeah. And that was about the same time, too. So, but anyway, so, but you get on. And so uh, again, now I saved my question till now. So um, you got in trouble before you had to do stuff. Uh, you had to, do, how many memos did you have to write at the EA Academy?
1: At the Academy? I didn't get in any trouble in the DEA academy. I got in trouble—not uh, trouble, but I got the, the merits and stuff in uh, in state police academy. But DEA, it, I don't remember getting. You any straightened trouble. up and flew right. Are you yeah, kidding? It was ridiculous. <laughs> it, was, it was shocking me too. In fact, they elected me. I gave the speech, uh, the commencement speech, when we graduated.
2: Oh, cool! Very and, good. No, that's, They threw, that's yeah, they, threw, they were
1: throwing people out in that DEA academy quick. So you didn't—you didn't really want to mess up. No, I didn't get in uh, any trouble graduated in school. There, if, I wonder, if I remember correctly, I think it was thirty-seven.
0: Do you remember how many you started with? No, it was uh
1: five or six that got tossed. Wow. So yeah, I don't remember the wow. exact amount, but it was five or Not six. Not that a- I was just
0: I was just one of my friends uh, has a son who graduated from the New Jersey State Police Academy, you know. Couple years ago and stuff, but it, so I've been following their page. They started; they just graduated their latest class, but they started off with I think it was two ten, and only graduated one thirty four.
1: Wow! Am I, I heard yeah. that's a tough academy, very right. tough academy.
0: State Poli- New Jersey State Police, man. I'll tell you what; that's uh, they are they're one of the toughest academies. Now, um, okay, so you you were straighten up and fly right. You were a teacher's pet, obviously, in the academy. But uh, did you get to pick? Did you get to put in uh, where you wanted <laughs> to be posted?
1: Yeah, you could put in, but of course, again, you serve in Of course, again,
0: you're going to go right back to Baltimore. So this is
1: great. I want to get away from Maryland. I've spent my whole life here. It's a big country. I think I put in Miami, Atlanta, and Houston. or Now, hold
0: on. And where did you get posted? Baltimore.
1: (laughs) 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 They said, congratulations, we're sending you home. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs)
2: When when you went to Baltimore, was, was there an agent there named Basil Santos?
1: Yes. I knew Basil. I knew Basil before I got hired by DEA. I, I was there oh, I in the meeting the day he jumped on the sword and ended up in Charleston, West Virginia.
2: Yep, And that's where I hired on. That's where I first met him.
1: Oh, my. I, well, I, you know, he died. Basil died.
2: Yeah, I heard. I heard. I heard
1: yeah. Unfortunately.
2: You know who else was a
1: Baltimore city cop?
2: Who? Oh, yeah. Michelle Lenhart.
1: Michelle Lenhart was in my class. She's oh, no she was in your class? Yep. She was, I think she You
0: I... know what? I, I want you to know something. She's in there under fraudulent circumstances. She poofed her hair to become five foot four inches because <laughs> she was five foot three and three quarter. She goes, I poofed my hair being from Fargo, Go Bears. Uh she poofed her hair so she could be five four. I thought she was make from the... Minnesota. She was. Well, but she but you have to um that's where she grew up, but uh you have to. You have to listen to the episode, damn it. It don't Steve, don't you have our people listen to all of our episodes before we have them on?
2: Hey, and it's Lanny. Uh, Lenny, you'd <laughs> love it. I mean, she's she was an innocent little little girl that grew up there in Minnesota and and uh it's just Oof, her no. story oh, is yeah. fascinating.
1: What a nice lady. I mean, she was just a tremendous lady in school. Uh she got one picked as one of the outstanding students, her and a guy named Larry Sprout, who's a good friend of mine. And,
2: Larry Sprout, and, yeah.
1: You know Larry? He was in Atlanta, great guy, Vietnam yeah. vet, went all over Indonesian. And uh Asia and he's just fantastic guy. We're still friends, but I haven't talked to him in a long time.
0: She talked about applying like twenty different places and Baltimore Ooh. hired her. And to get it was actually to get on Baltimore, she had to be five foot four. So she poofed her hair <laughs> out that extra quarter of an inch. And that's how the legend started. Hey, well, there you go. We just tied that together. So Michelle Linhart, you know, and now you, Lenny Athis, both out of the same class. Yeah, was, and you didn't become administrator.
2: No, no.
0: <laughs> oh well. Well, thank
2: you. I didn't either, and I'm glad I didn't.
0: <laughs> Look, that comes with the whole set of headaches, too, man. Um, oh my gosh, th- that's that's when it gets political. You're not DEA anymore. You're you're a you know political appointee. But anyway, as we go back to you, so you put in for all those things, so you got Baltimore. I did. So. <laughs>
1: did six years there when
2: I got back.
0: Wait a minute. sounds like you're doing prison time instead of I spent six years. I did six years there. I did six years on the inside in Baltimore.
2: You've been to Baltimore. You know what it's like.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. First time when we moved out there, we we moved out to Virginia uh, in 2000. I was commuting back and forth for six months, but we moved out and uh, my middle son moved out with me, divorced and remarried. So kid from a previous marriage. And then my daughter, we decided we wanted to go hang out at the inner Harbor. We'd never been there before, heard Mm -hmm. things about it. We go there. We do no more than get there, walk around the corner. And basically we're mobbed by like five homeless people. And my daughter clung to my leg the whole time. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, I weren't. But I tell you the most, thats the scaredest I think I was. And believe it or not, I was the... 2012, uh, we did the inaugural uh, Pennsylvania ride for Law Enforcement United. So uh, every police week, you know, you get police unity tour and Law Enforcement United. We'd ride our bikes into D.C. So we started in Reading, uh, P.A., and came down through, and we were coming through Baltimore. And I'm asking these guys, why the fuck are we coming through Baltimore? We're on bikes. We've got motorcycles in front of us, you know, escorting us. They know we're a bunch of cops. And we're going through this one area, and I'm looking at these row houses going— there's a motherfucking sniper up there I can I can see. We were like, pedal, and the streets were so bad. I, th- I think probably three people got flat tires or broke their rim just trying to pedal and get the hell out of Baltimore there.
1: Well, you know, when I was in the state police, we used to have this one bar downtown. We were all single and everything. We'd all—narcotics. We'd all go to it on a Friday night. One of our guys got robbed at gunpoint there uh, one night going down there. And then at the time, Mayor William Donald Schaefer was redoing Baltimore. He took— areas that were just horrible, horribly depressed areas, and the city bought all the houses and land and they would sell you a house for a dollar. You couldn't be a developer, you couldn't be a builder or anything like that it had to be for your personal use and you had to sign documents that you'd live there so long and you put X amount of money in rehabilitating the house. And he turned that city. It was wonderful when I left in 1986, I didn't come back until the nineties for trial to that area. I mean, I came back to see my parents that lived up there at the time, but they were in the county, way up in the county. And, and I came back, it was in the fall of the year. I had to testify at at a sentencing in federal court. And I flew in. I stayed at the Hilton right down Hopkins Plaza was where our office was. And it was great. They had a, they had a theater for performing arts there. Is they,
0: that down by Johns Hopkins and the university of the hospital there? No. Is that why no. they called Hopkins? Okay. No. different. I era. don't know
1: why they, I really don't know why they called House Plaza, but they had a big bank building. They had a big federal building there and DEA's office was in there as well as ATF and IRS. Then so they had a theater for performing arts there. They had restaurants and little uh, bar and everything. And it was just great. And I saw Lucille Ball in the, in the bar right next to the theater for performing arts one, one time. I didn't talk to her, but, uh, but she, it was just neat. I mean, it was great. I went to stuff there uh, occasionally. And when I came back in the 90s, the theater was all boarded up. All the restaurants and bars were closed and boarded up. There was graffiti. Homeless people sleeping everywhere. I remember just my mouth dropping. I couldn't believe what had happened. And then people were telling me, "Oh no, now everybody's over on the other side over there. The place called Federal Hill. That's where everybody is now. Whatever." But, but what happened to this? It was great. There wasn't any reason for it to be like that. And I, it was a, really a dram, dramatic change. And then I, and it's just kept getting worse. I don't know what happened, but it's it's a mess now.
2: I like that. I like the Inner Harbor area down there with all the different sites and the aquarium, and you got the ball field's not too far away. I I just read something at
1: Closed. I heard the Inner Harbor's Closed. All the businesses went out. They they had any kind of restaurants you could think of there, Italian, seafood, Greek, Chinese, I mean, uh, Asian. I mean, just – it was great, 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 but I don't know what happened. Yeah,
0: between COVID and then, like you say, it only takes a little hit for some of those places. And plus, with all the other stuff, the crime down there just got bad. I mean, you'd read stories of people just getting shot, killed, mugged, you know, just it was like... I it kind of reached a point, too, to where it's like we're we're, ne- we're just never coming back here again because, to your point, it's just too dangerous. But anyway, let's get back to something fun. So while you're in Baltimore, now <laughs> you've tried to escape. <laughs> this is like uh, Kurt Russell's Snake Plissken escape from New York. You've tried to escape Baltimore several <laughs> times, and yet here we are again. So what did you do, though? I mean, what it's when you got there, because not only did you work it um, you know, from a state – police standpoint, you know, working the road, and then you worked it from a narcotics standpoint and you saw the cases. What was the biggest change between what you were doing then and what you're doing now that made the job so much different?
1: The types of cases. I mean, uh, just the cases. I I remember talking to some other cops in DEA school and I remember us saying, because, you know, DEA pays better that, yeah, well, you know, we're not going to have the kind of work like we used to have when we were you know, detectives, but you know, at least we're going to be making you know, a little bit more money and we can travel a little bit. And it'll be nicer. Boy, I, I couldn't have been more wrong had I planned to be. You had as much work to do in DEA as you wanted to do. And the cases there was, the sky was the limit with them. And um, the first case I made, um, I won't bore you with all the details, but basically what it involved was a group of people from the Baltimore area who were traveling to Columbia and they were buying cocaine and they were at a source down there that had a press and they would put take buy children's books and take the cardboard backing out of it, put cocaine in that in its place, and then reseal it and it just look like a regular book.
0: Now hold on a second, because we don't want to make sure we don't mix people up. There is a Columbia, Maryland and then there's the country of Columbia. So the when you say Columbia. Columbia are you Okay. The Republic right. of Columbia. Because I'm thinking, it makes it economical. You just try to have to drive down to Columbia, Maryland, and get all this stuff done. It keep, you know <laughs> keeps it local. No, no, this was Columbia,
1: South America, and they did this uh, several times. And when I was talking to you about the conspiracy stuff, well, now you know, and and I had some of the older agents that had been around a long time. One in particular was just fantastic, Bill Miller. He just uh, I I can't say enough great about him and it's historical conspiracy. He was so quiet. He could sit next to you for three years and if he didn't like you, he just wouldn't talk to you. I mean, he'd say hello and good morning and all that, but (laughs) the knowledge that guy had, it was just, and he taught me a lot of the way they do things uh, because I listened (laughs) and and, uh, so we start looking in this case and uh, we had developed, well, I, I ended up buying an ounce of cocaine from one of the participants undercover so he personally sold me an ounce of cocaine so he was popped and then we popped him we you know a couple other people that were with him and went to him. so people started rolling over so one of the guys who was a cooperator said well I, you know i was one of the couriers that went down there and i probably still have some stuff let's go to my mother's attic so he went to his mother's house he had all his stuff up in her attic he found a receipt for himself where he stayed at this hotel in uh, Colombia, and it had a, another one of the target's names on it. They stayed at a, at a receipt, uh, Tecundama in Colombia, in Bogota. And he had one of the books that they had put the cocaine in, and the back um, hard cover of it, was ripped open and there was nothing there, just the, just the remains of where the cocaine had been put in. They they pressed the cocaine and they made it so it was as hard as that piece of cardboard they put in. It was thin and and, uh, and the proper dimensions, and uh, that's how they were smuggling that. Not a lot, I mean, it's not a lot of dope, but man, that was it was. And there was an American who was their coordinator. She was from uh, Detroit, if I remember, and we ultimately uh, indicted her. Indicted several other people. And the Colombians threw her out because she wasn't a Colombian uh, native or national. She was an American and she came to Baltimore and we uh, convicted her. and She went away as did several other people.
2: Welcome home.
0: Welcome. She see, She couldn't escape Baltimore either, man. She got thrown back here too. <laughs> but isn't it amazing how creative and the things they do, it's just like mm-hmm. putting, think about Somebody goes, "Hey, let's put cocaine in books." And if your first thought is, "Are you an idiot?" You know, it's like, "No, we'll we'll press it really hard." So now you have to find the equipment. You have to get the dimensions. There's a lot of work that goes into just. I mean, and how much how much cocaine would be in a single book? I mean, we're not you're not talking about shipping a kilo in a book. I mean, you're getting what ounces?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't think it was a, po- a pound. I don't think no. I'd be less than a pound. I, would, I don't remember now. I knew then about what it would hold, but I don't remember now. It's been so long. But it was, I mean, I'll tell you, uh, it's funny too because there was an agent who was in Bogota at the time and he was an agent and he called this uh, American girl and talked to her and he got some great incriminating conversations that helped us. So she ended up pleading guilty rather than going to trial. She really helped us. It's otherwise just been somebody's word against her. And I ultimately ran into him again because he, uh, he was an ASAC and an associate agent in charge in Miami. His name was Mike Kane. And uh, he helped me out a lot on that case, and that was my first um, little case that I kind of did in Baltimore. And um, I just always remembered it because you know it's one of the first ones.
2: It's exciting. It's, I mean you're, is. you're going all of a sudden you're going to this international level with your investigations. It's just really cool.
1: I mean, before I was buying you know grams and and hand-to-hand hand-to-hand hand to hand deals and just a take ounce of marijuana, half an ounce quackamole. I mean, you
0: arrest a guy and ten guys take his place. He's in jail and ten guys have already taken his place.
1: And you know it just it was just very satisfying, and i just I loved it, and then, uh just went on from there.
0: I mean, I know you made quite a few cases in Baltimore. What was before before we start talking about Bering Kia because you got to go through language school to do that. um, what was probably one of the biggest cases you worked on while you were in Baltimore?
1: Well, there was a guy he's out now, so i'll leave I'll leave his name he paid he did his time, and the FBI had been after him for twenty five years, never laid a glove on him. We'd heard about him the state police it was kind of like one of those untouchable guys. And it was a whole family of uh, people involved, those relatives and friends and brothers and all that. And I I had a thing where I, I would just say, okay, instead of just taking a target of opportunity, why don't you use the intelligence that everybody keeps compiling everywhere in law enforcement and and use it in a sound way? In other words, okay, who's the biggest guy here in your area or, or area of responsibility or wherever you are. Okay. It's Mr. X. Okay. And we're sure Mr. X is doing all this. Oh yeah, we got this, that, 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 I said, all right, fine. Mr. X is now the focus. Not, not who, just who is out there, but Mr. X is the focus. Let's study him. Let's figure out how to get him. And, and that's what I did. And I, you know, I'd come up with things that, that were clever. Like he had one fella that was associated with him. And once this became really overt, uh, who had done time for kidnapping and all that, and he was a pretty nasty guy. So one day I had my, uh, my suit on. as so We wore suits his short hair and, and, an, and an overcoat. And I had a, another agent with me. And I went down and introduced myself to him. And he goes, what are you introducing me for? I said, well, you know, I just told you I'm a special agent with the Department of Justice, DEA. And I said, and I just thought you should meet me because you're going to be hearing a lot about me because I'm going to put you in federal prison. Because you're hooked up with this guy and I know what you're doing. And I just don't think it's fair as you run around, and you don't know who I am. So I'm just introducing myself. Have a nice day. And I left. <laughs> you're a crazy <laughs> – some people are going
0: to go, you're one crazy motherfucker.
1: What you, What the oh, – yeah. you're
0: putting a target on yourself. Yeah, here I am. When you see me with binoculars,
1: I'm watching you. Well, ultimately when I put the handcuffs on him, a couple – a year or two later, a year and a half later, he says – I'll say one thing about you, Atheist. You were one persistent pain in the ass. <laughs> so we just started doing Put that on, put doing, that on started, my tombstone. Well, we did a uh, – we developed enough uh, between us, and this was uh, the Anne Arundel County Police. Uh, a guy who ended up becoming the sheriff of Anne Arundel County, Ronnie Bateman, the young guy, and his father had been my sergeant in the state police. But Ronnie was the uh, – was the guy, he's actually written several books. He's a real good guy. And he was the the lead guy, young guy, young, in this early twenties in that County Police Department narcotics section. And he had been after all these people too. Anyway, ultimately we we got court authorization to do room bugs and wiretaps. And it was kind of cool because is like things do. We had to find a place to do a listing post. So we ended up renting a houseboat because there's a lot of water in the area where it was. And we did our listing post. That that makes perfect sense. And, um, and so we put a room bug in there and uh, we, you know, followed them around. Well, we had a court authorization to do all this.
0: Hold on. You're getting too far ahead because it's one thing to do a wiretap because you can do a title three, you go to the phone company, get all that. Let's talk about the room bug because now we're talking about clandestine entry. We're talking about basically a black bag job, black bag job to get that in there. Who, tell us about getting that in there. Once you get, you know, who did it? How'd you guys do it? Kind of walk us through that.
1: We had specialists that did that, did that kind of stuff. And of course, now, the, were they
0: DEA people yes. or were they contracted? No, no, DEA, okay,
1: DEA people. And then you have to make sure that you follow everybody that lives in that house and 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 who else might come there and you keep make sure they're not getting anywhere near there because you don't want any uh, interaction. And then they go in and they find a place and they uh, put the bug in. Uh, unfortunately, for us, it was a spike bug up through the floor and it was uh, in an area where the dog used to clean himself. <laughs> So, so you got a lot of what? Slurpee sounds, a lot of licking sounds, uh, but it was uh, right for the dog. But the phone got us what we needed,
2: and um, I well, think I think you got some Murphy in you because that's a Murphy's Law type <laughs> thing, right there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey but 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 but
0: see this is this is like shades of like espionage and spy stuff when you talk about going in and planting bugs in somebody's house. So these guys also had to be obviously trained and if they needed to defeat locks, they had to be able to be able to pick locks, you know, and bypass those and defeat security alarms and That's correct. stuff like that. How t- how tough was it for them to get into this particular location considering he was Mr. X?
1: No problem. They got in.
0: They did. Yeah. Now, how long no, did it take them
1: to get long. in and out? Not long. I just. To, to now, really I don't good.
2: know if it was like this. I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was like this back then when you were doing that, Lenny. But did you have to find the target uh, yes. before the team went in? Then you, you had to oh, put yeah. surveillance on the target.
1: Yep, yep. I was sitting. Yep. Uh, I was sitting in the list in the listening post and was sort of coordinating everything when this was all going on. Yeah, so I remember. Yeah, he's here. And we had, and it's another way too from the the conversations that you would intercept, you knew when something was planned and they had something planned for the evening that particular day. So that's when we coordinated to have everything done.
0: Now, how many rooms did you end up uh, just, right? one, just how many one. rooms did you end up but just
1: one just one yeah. and you got a lot of slurpy sounds yeah, we didn't get anything of any value at all, from that. but we did from we did from the phone in fact um uh the main target had moved out of state. the main guy that the and the FBI was helping us um, saw more of them at the press release than I did anywhere, but that's our that's another story anyway um <laughs> well,
2: there's something new
1: <laughs> and uh so anyway, so uh we would uh get phone calls once in a while. And I would had a conversation and it was say, was it before or after? I oh, know it was before he calls and he'd moved to a Southern state. Let's let it go at that. And um, he calls our target that we have the phone on, which was his, some relation to him, nephew or cousin or something. I forget. And tells him about this FBI guy he plays cards with. Uh, That he doesn't play cards with, but his friend plays cards with. And the FBI guy was bragging about our investigation. Oh my God. And yada, yada, yada. So this guy's telling our target on the phone, Well, you know, I'm glad my file's down here. I figured he'd get down here sooner or later, but I'm glad I know it now. And they talk back and forth. So I ended up calling the FBI agent. I wasn't very nice to him. And then I get called into the office because uh, the sack of the FBI in um, in Baltimore called the SARSAC, who I really like, loved the guy. He's not with us anymore. His name's Tom O'Grady. and told him that what I said was going through that would go through their headquarters like shit through a goose. Because I told the FBI, I just said, "Well, you don't, well, you can't really tell I heard anything. You don't even know what I said." Yada yet. I said, "Well, that's alright. We had a grand jury. We'll probably be in touch." And he said, you can't do that. Don't call him up threat, which I shouldn't have done really, but I did. So because he pissed me off because he shouldn't have been running his mouth off like that. And, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, we ended up, we ended up getting a search warrant. And um, if you remember Jeff Sessions, our former attorney general, he was the, um U.S. attorney in, in, uh, in the town we were in at the time.
0: Yeah. But, but hold on a second there, Lenny. What is, what does it say about the guy who's so sophisticated, he's supposed to be untouchable he's getting this information that the FBI agent is doing, and yet he's still talking on the phone. Did he not figure that you guys could tap the phones?
1: No, I guess not. <laughs> Nobody had ever touched <laughs> see, him in Rockets years. He'd been a criminal his entire life, and no one had ever touched him in years. And see,
0: there, there again is one of the key lessons we've learned from a lot of these uh, podcasts we've done and sessions, you know, in interviews we've done, is that the arrogance of some of these folks to think they're untouchable. And even though the evidence is in front of them, it's like the idiots Murphy, Who was it we were talking to? They go, Oh yeah, I knew you were I knew you were a cop. Well then yeah. you're the biggest idiot on the block to yeah. keep buying and selling dope, you know.
1: I had a guy yeah. in the state police one time make me raise my right hand, swear under oath I wasn't a cop. I did. Yeah. And then yeah. when we were arrested, he said, You can't do it. I'm getting off because you lied. I said, Okay.
0: Well, that was Sherry. If you if they ask you three times, if you're if you're a cop and you say no, then you, you then you can't do that by law. You have yeah. to admit if you're a cop after the third it's time. Like that's Beetle like Gears. these
1: sovereign citizens that think if they say all this crazy stuff that uh, it makes things better for them, it's ridiculous. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and and here's a spoiler alert, folks. It never works out well for those guys. Um, so let's go back to this. So so that's interesting. So let let's talk about that. So you get past the FBI. Um, talking about the case. This guy's still talking. So continue on from there. What guy, you know, wh- you, tell us about getting the guy.
1: We got a bunch of search warrants and I had this one uh, trailer that they used to talk about and I listened to it later. I, I didn't catch it at the time because I used to come in, even if I wasn't working as a monitor, I'd listen to all the calls because it was my case. And he um, says, well, you know, if you got to go in there and somebody's there, just say you got to use the bathroom. Well, that didn't mean anything to me at the time. And it was a trailer. So we ended up, doing our search warrants when we accumulated enough evidence we did a search warrant at the main target's house down in the state he was living in and uh, we got a cane gun it was a walking cane that was actually a 12 gauge shotgun he's a convicted felon a b that's a national firearms act weapon so we indicted him in that in that uh, federally in that jurisdiction that's and,
0: a 5 year yeah, minimum 5 year on yeah, that one he
1: got convicted in a trial we went to a trial and he, I uh, think, got three years. So he's on ice. So that's when I started walking around, like to uh, the guy I told you, the former kidnapper, and says, "I just want you to meet me because you're, you're going you're gonna to be hearing about me." <laughs> and then we just start doing a grand jury investigation.
0: Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two, as always, comes out on Thursday. In the meantime, check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast, on Facebook, at the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good stuff, including... If you are at the right level, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne, we have just released Part 1, Episode 1 of The Real DEA Narcos Talking About The Real DEA Narcos, Cali Edition. Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell go in-depth 16 hours about how they took down the Cali cartel. Information you will not hear anywhere else in the world, not on Netflix, not anywhere, not in a book, only right here on Game of Crimes at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, also go check out our webpage, Podcast.com. We've got the latest merch, pictures for every episode that we put up, books that our guests write. We only put up books that they write. We put them up there. So we thank you once again for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes.